Okay, kids, uh, if you want to grab your uh, Trinity Kids Bulletin, you can find a spot on there to jot down these three things that I want you to listen for. So the first is Oculus Quest. Some of you will know what that is. Others of you, I realize, have no idea what that is. We'll talk about it. Uh, The second is Return of the King. And then thirdly, I want you to count the number of times I say the word unlikely. Okay? So Oculus Quest, Return of the King, and then unlikely. So with that, let uh, let me pray for us. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our heart together would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you that it is absolutely true. We thank you that you've given it to us because you love us. And so, Father, we pray that your spirit would work with your word now to enable us to see Jesus. We pray that we would behold him in all of his beauty and all of his glory and all of his power and all of his grace. And we pray this all in his name. Amen. Uh, we had a uh, membership seminar at our house uh, last weekend. We could go yesterday. And um, when we had people introduce themselves, I, I asked them to, uh, to answer what is a pretty vulnerable and, and telling question, maybe a little bit more so than what we typically do. Uh, and the question was, what is your favorite Christmas movie? And uh, we're really striving to know and be known in our life together. You know, uh, Most common answer was Elf, of course, right? And so you'll remember that that the movie Elf begins in an orphanage with Santa showing up on a a Christmas night. Uh, The baby buddy uh, crawls into the the bag of gifts. He's on the the sleigh. He comes back to the North Pole. The elves take him in and they raise him uh, as an elf and call him Buddy. Eventually, though, he gets older and Buddy discovers in this moment of extreme existential crisis that he is not an elf, right? He's a human, and, uh, and the way that he figures that out is by ruining a lot of things happening at the North Pole. So he is the slowest toy builder, uh, he brings the elf choir down a full octave, and he breaks a whole lot of chairs, because they're all made for elves. And uh, in short, he's a cotton-headed ninny muggins, right? And uh, at that point, he realizes he's in danger of ruining Christmas. And so he leaves the North Pole and he goes to New York City to find his dad. Fast forward to Christmas Eve. Santa's in New York delivering presents. His sleigh breaks down in Central Park and Buddy is the only one who can fix it. And he fixes Santa's sleigh and by singing loud for all to hear, brings about Christmas cheer so that his sleigh can continue on. And so at the end of the movie, here's what Papa Elf says. Things you wouldn't expect to say from the pulpit ever, right? And so, with a little help, Buddy managed to save Christmas. And so, in the end, Buddy becomes the most unlikely hero. So there's, there's nobody that would have expected him to be the one who would save Christmas. And so, here, this is where you've got to be careful comparing this to our passage today. But, <laughs> stay with me. The account of Luke 1 is one of those stories that if we weren't familiar with it, I realize we're very familiar with it, but if we were not familiar with it, would also be this story of a totally unlikely hero. And if you step back and think about this, there is so much about the Christmas story in the scriptures, about Jesus' promised arrival, that comes in a way that nobody would have expected. And so, as I mentioned, we're in the season of Advent. It means arrival or coming. And so part of what we're doing during Advent is we're looking back in celebration to Jesus' first arrival. But also, at the same time, 
we're looking forward with the sense of expectation and hope of his second coming when he comes as our our king and reigning Lord. And so what we're going to do, what we're doing during this season, is we're looking at the first chapter of Luke's gospel, and we're looking at different ways in which we are longing for good news. And so last week we looked at the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah. We talked about longing for joy. Here's what I want us to see this week. We're going to look at our longing for a king. Here's the thing about that, though. This promised king would come in the most unlikely of ways. And so what you get in Luke 1 is an account of an unlikely king being born in an unlikely city to an unlikely teenage girl who then responds with this unlikely faith. And and here's why this is so important for us to see. That the unlikely way of Jesus' coming means that you can trust this God to keep his promises even when you can't see how he's going to do it. And that's what I want us to look some at today. And I want to give just one word of caution here on the front end. As I mentioned, this is one of the, the most familiar passages in the entire Bible. So whether you are one who has grown up in the church or you might be here today just visiting with a friend, this might be the first church you've been to in years. Chances are you have heard this story. And the issue with that is that because it's so familiar to us, we might lose some of how unlikely and how unexpected this really is. And so what I want you to try to do today is to try to look at this passage with fresh eyes. I want you to try to to imagine and put yourself into a place where you have never heard this before and try to imagine what it is like to hear this for the very first time. So uh, a few years ago, it was actually during quarantine, uh, one of my sons got an Oculus Quest. So if you're not familiar with what that is, it's basically virtual reality. And uh, it, it is incredibly real and lifelike. You can play all these amazing games on it and they project onto a screen so everybody can watch you while you're playing. It's also a great way to get hurt. One of my friends did this um, and he actually fell on his coffee table and crushed his coffee table. Not, not great. Um, but the other thing you can do with, with an Oculus Quest is you can go to different places. You can go to all of these places around the world and it's like you're there. And so what I want you to think about doing, kids, I want you to think about this specifically. Imagine that you've put on your Oculus Quest and you're going to Israel in the first century. Okay, that's where we are. So three things I want us to see. One is our longing for a king. Secondly, the the coming of the king. And then thirdly, the response to the king. So first, uh, the longing for a king. So we drop into this story. We talked some about this last week. But at this point, Israel is in a really tough spot. They've been repeatedly overrun by these other foreign powers, and that's gone back for about the last 300 years. And so by the first century, where this is all taking place, Rome is in power at the time. And so here's the thing. If you were to ask a first century Jewish person, what do you need most? What is it that you need most right now? They would probably say something like, what we need most is for God to finally send his Messiah King so that he could come as this conquering king. And so that, that, that expectation and that hope was based on this promise that God had made that one day he would come as, a Messiah, as king and he would sit on the throne of, the David, uh, throne of David and finally set his people free. And that, that promise, that promise of this coming king is all over the Old Testament. And so I I want to give you just a few examples here just to give you a feel for how a first century Jewish person 
would have been thinking about this. So God says this to David in 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up, raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. This was part of our Old Testament lesson. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And then in verse 7 says this. Listen to the kingly language. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. One last passage, Isaiah 52. This is the announcement of the good news. This is the good news that they were longing to hear. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. See, the the good news that they were longing for would only ever arrive when God came as king. And so they sang these promises and they prayed these promises over and over in all parts of their life. And the thing about that is that they're thinking, if this is going to happen, if God is really going to fulfill this promise, promise, then what he's going to have to do is he's going to have to come strong and he's going to have to overthrow these Romans who have all the power in the world right now. And so in the words of a great Andrew Peterson song, the expectation was this. We want a king on a throne full of power with a sword in his fist. That's what they were hoping for. So let me just press pause right there. Because that probably makes a good bit of sense from Israel's perspective. They know that they need God to come as a king. And so that's what they were longing for. That's what their heart's desire ultimately was. Here's the thing. If I were to ask you... What do you most long for? What do you need most right now? What does our world need most? My guess is that probably none of us would say a king. But here's what we've got to understand. According to the Bible, that is exactly what we need. And this goes all the way back to the very beginning of the scriptures, where where God, God's intent from the very beginning was that he would rule and reign over the world through his kingly image bearers. And so Adam and Eve were were, were supposed to have dominion over the world in this good and gracious way, such that it would reflect the good and gracious character of God. And that's obviously what they failed to do. And so what's happened then in our sin is that we have rejected God as king. And so now the the, the natural tendency in every one of our hearts is to look to God and say, get your hands off my life. I don't need you telling me what to do. I don't want you telling me what to do. I know what's best for me. And that's where things were at the end of Genesis 3. Here's the beauty of the God of the Bible. He does not leave us in that place. Instead, he makes this incredible promise that he would one day return as king and that he would reestablish his kingdom. And and here's what's so important about that. His reign as king over Israel would not be just good news to Israel alone. His reign as king would be good news to the entire world because that is the way that God would make this world right again. It's the way that he would restore things to the way that they're supposed to be. 
Here's what that means for you and for me. It means that you're longing for wholeness. You're longing for for joy. You're longing for this world to be free of the sadness and sorrow and death that is all around us. Is only ever going to be satisfied when God is reigning as king. And that's because he's the only one who can fix this. He is the only one who can make things right again. So um, around this time of year, one of my favorite winter books to read is The Lord of the Rings. And so I'm rereading right now. And so I want you to think, uh, think back to Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Specifically, think about the return of the king. And you might remember that the only way that Middle Earth is going to be made right again is when Aragorn is reigning as the true king on the throne. That's something like this expectation here. This is what Israel longed for. That that king would come and they were desperate for it. Here's what's wild about this. The way that that king was going to come was in a way that nobody would have expected. And so secondly, the coming of the king. So how is this king going to come? Here's the short answer. In a totally unlikely way. And it's all over this passage. So first... The king comes to an unlikely city. So uh, look back at verse 26. Luke says in verse 26, the same Gabriel who, who had visited Zechariah and Elizabeth now comes to Mary. But here's the deal, though. Instead of going to the temple, which was this incredibly important place, the central dwelling place of God, he goes instead to this small, no-name town in the backwaters of the Roman Empire called Nazareth. And you might, you might remember this is in uh, John chapter 1 where Nathaniel hears about Jesus for the first time. He hears he's from Nazareth. And he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That was the perspective on this town. It was a no-name town. It's never mentioned in the Old Testament. It's rarely mentioned outside the Bible. It, it's so small and insignificant that you've got to explain it in reference to Galilee. Right? You know how that works with small towns. You say, yeah, it's about this far from Fort Worth, right? That's what Nazareth is. And here's the point. This is not the kind of town that a king would come from. He comes secondly, though, to an unlikely girl. And here's the thing about this. Uh, When we think about Mary, we rightly think about Mary, who is the mother of God, mother of Jesus. But um, as one pastor puts this, um, at this point in Luke 1, she's just Mary. She's just Mary at this point. She's probably 13 or 14 years old. That's the age of a seventh grader or an eighth grader. She's likely pretty poor, a peasant girl. Luke says she's betrothed or, or engaged to, to, to be married to this man named Joseph. Joseph is a descendant from David. That's a big deal. But we also know, though, that, that, that he's a carpenter. He's not somebody of wealth. He's not somebody who has any kind of social importance or status. And so Mary is this ordinary Jewish girl whose life is about to get turned upside down. So this king comes to this unlikely city to an unlikely girl who's going to give birth to a king as an unlikely baby. And so Gabriel comes to Mary and says this, verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and we will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And so this passage is the one that is drenched in Old Testament language. 
And so Gabriel picks up that, that promise in 2 Samuel and says, this child is the one. He's the one who's going to sit on the throne of David. He's the one who's going to reign over the house of Jacob forever. And it's his kingdom that's going to have no end. His name it, it should be called Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. And not only is he going to be king, he's going to be one who has this special relationship with God himself. He's going to be God's own son. Here's what's so unexpected about this. That king, that that long hoped for savior and Messiah isn't going to show up as this powerful ruler. He's going to show up instead as this helpless, humble infant. And if that weren't shocking enough, it's going to happen in the most unlikely way. So Gabriel says that that, that she's going to have a baby. Mary asks, how is that possible? She's a virgin. She's never known a man. And this makes no sense at all to her. How in the world is this going to happen? Verse 35. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And that word overshadow is really important. Because the other place that that word shows up is in Exodus chapter 40. And what's happening in Exodus 40 is that the Lord's presence overshadows the tabernacle. This this place where God dwells by his spirit. And now Gabriel is saying, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that same presence of God is going to come in a person. In God's own son. And again, I want you to think about hearing this for the first time. Can you, can, you, can you get a feel for how unexpected every part of this story really is? Do you see how wild all of this sounds? That the way God would bring the true king and rescuer into this world, his own son would be through an unwed teenage version, version in a no-name town where nobody would see it. And so here's the question. What does that mean for us? What does it mean for us, especially as we're thinking about what it means to wait in Advent. And I mentioned this earlier, but I think one of the real gifts of Advent and one of the reasons it's such an important season for us is that it forces us to look at the darkness in our lives. It forces us to look at that darkness rather than trying to pretend that it's not really there. And that is a gift, but at the same time, that is so hard as well. Because if you take an honest look at what can really feel like the irreparable brokenness of your family, the irreparable brokenness of your relationships, the irreparable brokenness of your past, that can start to feel like it's too much. It feels overwhelming. And what you can start to do at that point is begin to wonder, is God ever going to do something about this? I was uh, I was talking to somebody this week. And he said to me, what if Jesus Jesus really isn't going to come back and fix all this? That is a real, honest question. And part of what this passage says to you is that the God of the Bible loves to work in the most unlikely and unexpected ways. It shows you that you can trust him to keep his promises even when you have no idea how he's going to do it. Because that's exactly what he does here. And so one of the real gifts of this passage is that is exactly the place where Mary finds herself. 
I want you to just think for a moment about how she must have felt. She's this poor peasant girl who's just found out that she's about to have a child outside of wedlock. And and here's the thing about that. In Deuteronomy 22, to, 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 to be pregnant outside of marriage was a capital offense. So can you just imagine for a moment what's going through her mind as she's thinking about having to tell Joseph or having to tell her father or having to think about all of these people in her community they're going to see her and know something's going on here. Can you imagine how frightened she had to have been? And betrothal in that world is not the same as engagement in ours. Because when you were betrothed to somebody, that meant that a marriage contract had been signed. Money had been exchanged. And the only way that you could break that was by death or by divorce. It would have been excruciating for her to be in this place. And we have got to really feel that. We've got to feel that in order to understand how incredible her response is to all of this. So thirdly, and finally, the response to the king. And Mary responds in a few different ways here. One is this. She responds by asking a question. This is in verse 34. So she asks Gabriel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And here's what's important to see about this question. It's different from the kind of question that Zechariah had asked of Gabriel in the passage we looked at last week. Because Mary's question here is not a question of whether God can do it. It's a question of how he's going to do it. And so Gabriel goes on to explain it to her. And then here's what she says. This is her second response. Verse 38. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And this is incredible for so many reasons. She doesn't have any other answers about how all this is going to play out. She has a a basic understanding from what Gabriel has said here. She doesn't know how Joseph's going to respond. She doesn't know how this is going to play out. She really doesn't know a whole lot about this baby that she's now carrying in her womb. And yet she gives herself completely to the promise and the word of God. Why does she do that? Look back to verse 28. This is the first thing that Gabriel says to her when he comes to her. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And then in verse 30, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And that word favor in both of those instances is usually translated as the word grace. God has shown you grace, Mary. Mary can trust the Lord because at the end of the day, she knows who her God is. She knows that her God is one who is with her. She knows that that, that her God is one who has shown grace to her. And she knows that her God is one who will always, always keep his promises. And so she can trust him to do something here that she has no idea how. And so here's, what, here's what's so remarkable about, uh, remarkable about this. Mary is able to trust God here without knowing what's going to happen next. Here's something remarkable for us, though. We do know what happened next. We know the rest of the story because we know exactly what that promised king would one day do. That he, 33 years later, would lay down his life for his people 
and then rise again from the dead. And what you need to know is that that is the ultimate reason that you can trust him to keep his promises even when you have no idea how he's going to do it. Because you can trust a king who would give his very life for you. You can trust that that king has come for you once and that that king is promising to once again come for you. So what does that mean for us while we wait? What do we do while we wait? Here's how Augustine puts it. This is on the front inside cover of your bulletin. And I'll close with this. He says, let us groan together, weep together, pray together, and wait together. But for whom? For the Lord, who never withdraws what he has promised, but only defers it. He will deliver it. He will most assuredly deliver it. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and we give you praise that you are a God who works in the most unlikely ways and that you are one who is faithful to keep your promises. And the Lord, you will do that whether we can see how you will do it or not. And so, Father, we pray that with Mary, we would be those who entrust ourselves to you. Lord, that we would know that you are one who keeps your promises and the way that you have demonstrated that most clearly and that you did not spare your one and only son, but you gave him up for us all. So, Father, we pray that you would enable us to look to you in hope, in expectation and in longing. And we pray this all for your glory and for our good. Amen.